Hopefully you all have your notes available here from the table out in the hall. And uh, you can see that we're going to continue Matthew 5, verse 9 this week. Believe it or not, that's not a record. Uh, two weeks for one verse. I've gone longer with a verse before. Uh, now last week we began our examination of this seventh beatitude, what are called the beatitudes of Jesus. And uh, we focused on our attention last week on what it means to be a peacemaker. We tried to get an overall take as briefly as we could on, on what Jesus was talking about when he used that term. Um, and this week we're going to focus our attention on what it means to be called sons of God. We're going to have to look at a number of places in Scripture to get a fuller understanding of what Jesus was talking about there as well. Uh, as I typically do, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Matthew 5. So that can we read all of these sayings of Jesus together, get an idea of the flow of thought there. Beginning in verse 1, we're told that seeing the multitudes, our Lord Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's take a moment to pray. Holy Father, those of us who have come to faith in Christ know that we only trusted in him as our Savior because you enabled us through the power of your Spirit to see and enter the kingdom. It's through the power of your Spirit that we were able to understand the gospel message, to see Christ for who he really is, to cease trusting in our own efforts and to trust fully in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone, for our salvation. And we are deeply aware that we are dependent this morning still on your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand the truths of your word. So it's our prayer that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding, that we might understand what you want to say to us through your word today, that we might become more like Christ that others might see a family resemblance between us and our Heavenly Father, that they might see our good works and glorify you. We ask these things for our good and for your glory, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Concerning the assurance that comes with our being heirs through Christ, which, as we'll see, is what this idea of our being sons of God is all about. I think this following illustration I came across might be helpful. There was a, a Chinese pastor who told about a new convert who came to him in deep distress and said, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. And this pastor said to him, 
Do you see this dog here? He's my dog. He is house-trained. He never makes a mess. He is obedient. He is a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He is a total mess. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir, and you are Christ's heir, because it is for you he died. We are Christ's heirs, not through our own efforts or our own perfection, right, but by means of his grace. And as we'll see this morning, we're heirs of God through faith in our Lord Jesus, and that's really what this beatitude is all about. When Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, as I've already mentioned, we're, we're seeking to answer two questions in this verse. We already looked at the first question last week, who are the peacemakers? So this week, our question is, what does it mean that the peacemakers shall be called the sons of God? What did Jesus have in mind when he used this terminology? And I think in our quest to answer this question, it's it's good for us to pause and explain our Lord Jesus' use of the masculine term sons here versus what most people today would see as a more inclusive language, such as the term children. And elsewhere in Scripture, that more generic term is used to cause the children of God. And 1 John 3, 1 is an example of that. Um, Or he could have used the phrase sons and daughters, Both of these options could have been said in Greek. They were available to him. He knew how to say these things. But instead, he used this masculine term, sons. And then the question is, why? Why? Now, as I've considered the scriptural background, I think there are at least two reasons for this. Um, First, Jesus was speaking in accordance with the pattern of male representative headship, which we find throughout scripture such as when all people can be referred to as man or mankind. For example, in the Old Testament, there's this Hebrew word, Adam. It's the name for Adam, right? It can also mean a man, or it can mean all men, mankind. And, of course, in the, in the Greek New Testament, uh, anthropos would be the word that can be used the same way. It can be refers to a particular man or to mankind in general. And we do the same thing in English. And when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon, he said, One small step for a man, right? One giant leap for mankind. And he didn't mean only males. He meant all of humanity, inclusive of women, right? And so most languages work this way, uh, where you have this principle of male representative headship that this language evokes. And it's a scriptural concept. It's built into the language of the Bible and into our own language, as it turns out. There's also um, other ways that we see masculine terms used. For example, in most of Paul's letters, he, ref- he, he refers to the brothers, or he'll address them to the brothers, the saints and brothers, for example, uh, in the church of Colossae, when he writes the letter to the Colossians. And so he uses the masculine term, brothers, or we say sometimes brethren, but it's inclusive of men and women. And we know this. It's obvious. Uh, for example, later in Colossians 3, Uh, Paul will issue a specific command to wives and to children, whether male or female, right? 
and to slaves, whether male or female, right? The brothers are inclusive, is an inclusive term of everybody in the body, but it's, the body is spoken of using this language of male representative headship. And so I'm arguing that's what Jesus is doing here when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. It's intended to be inclusive of women, even though masculine term is used. Uh, This is why Paul would later say in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, for you are all, he says, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And now listen to who he describes as having the status of sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Everybody who's a baptized believer, he's assuming all believers will be baptized, so he's thinking of all believers, right? All believers have this status of sons of God. And in case we didn't get that point by what he said already, he says there is neither Jew nor Greek. So despite what some of the Jews may have thought, Gentiles have the status of sons of God too. Uh, He says... There is neither slave nor free, despite what some of the free people might have thought, right? Uh, Slaves have the status of sons of God, too, and in that sense are spiritual equals of their masters in those days, even. This was the beginning of the undoing of slavery, as a matter of fact. It's hard to keep someone as a slave if they're your equal in Christ, right? And you might go to church, and he's your elder, he's your pastor, and he comes home, and you're his... He's your slave, and you're his master, right? It, you can see how that would begin to unravel slavery, pretty, at least among Christians. And then Paul says there is neither male nor female, despite what some men might have been tempted to think. Women have equal status in Christ as sons. And then he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Sons and heirs, he connects those two ideas, and we'll say more about that, because that's why this term sons is so important, because it's connected to being heirs. In fact, this happens by adoption, as Paul will go on to say as he continues his thought. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the appointed uh, time by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We are heirs. We're adopted as God's sons, he says. And this is inclusive of Everyone who's a believer, whether male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ, he says. Jesus is God's son, of course, by nature. We are sons by adoption, as he makes it clear. And this leads to the next reason that Jesus used the term. We've already hinted at it. Not only does it reflect this male representative headship pattern of language that you find in the Bible, but there's a an especially important reason to use it, in this case, this kind of male language. The second, Jesus was speaking in accordance with the practice of males being the principal heirs of their fathers. 
That's the way things functioned in that culture. In almost all instances. You have to have the status of sonship to be an heir. And so that status is given to men and women alike because we're all heirs of Christ equally, according to Scripture. Other passages also make this point quite clear, such as when the Apostle Peter admonished husbands with regard to their wives. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So if there are men who think, uh, I have a higher status than my wife in Christ, and they might be tempted to treat her poorly because of that, uh, Peter says, no, she's an heir equally with you. And we've seen why, because she has the status of an heir, and she has sonship in Christ in this sense. Now, Jesus and Paul knew what they were doing when they used this masculine term. It was a shock term almost to people in those days to say this. It would, have been, it would have stunned most of them, and that was the point of it. Uh, it's quite marvelous, actually. So although men and women still have distinct roles as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers, they possess the same status as heirs of God. It's sad to me, though, that uh, some modern translations, in their, in their zeal to use more inclusive language, because it, it's odd to speak of women as sons, it's shocking, and that was the point of using the term as I said, uh, to kind of shock them and, and make them realize that women have the same status. In their, in their zeal to do this, they'll, modern translations will often translate this term just as children so that modern readers won't be confused by it. Um, but in the process, I would argue that they're actually obscuring a very important way in which our Lord Jesus was actually elevating the status of women in his day. In their desire to try to elevate the status of women, they're actually lowering it when they translate this as children and not sons. They're doing the opposite of what Jesus and the apostles were doing, elevating the status of women as joint heirs in Christ. And to be sure, as I've already noted, their God-ordained roles have remained the same, which is why, for example, men are still to be heads of their homes, You can read about that in Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. And only men are to be pastors. This is very clear in Scripture. If you look at passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, 1 Timothy 3, 2, where it describes the qualifications of a pastor, elder, overseer. That's three different ways of talking about the same office in Scripture. But their spiritual standing is still as equals before God. And this shouldn't be hard for us to grasp. You know, people argue that Christians, because we believe in these role distinctions that Scripture clearly teaches, right? Um, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 is one of the clearest passages in the Bible, and it's only obscure to people who don't want to believe it, right? But they, they argue that we think women are inferior, and that simply isn't true. We don't believe that at all. In fact, we believe that men and women are also created as equal image bearers of God. We believe what it says. In Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he he created him. Male and female, he created them. But notice the the male representative headship language there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, referring to people generically, 
using male terms. Male and female, he created them. When he talks about man, he's talking about male and female as image bearers. And so Christians, we believe in this. We believe that women are created to be equal image bearers by God. And we believe, as Christians, that they have an equal status as joint heirs in Christ with men, even though we still hold to these role distinctions that the Bible teaches. Men and women have distinct roles, husbands and fathers. They have distinct roles. They were created to have distinct roles in the family and in society and in the church. That continues in the body of Christ. And people that find this confusing, it always shocks me that they find it confusing because everybody is under someone else's headship somewhere, right? If you're a child, you're under the authority of your parents, it's not because you're an inferior being that you're under the authority of your parents. It's because their role as parents puts them in authority over you. When a policeman pulls you over to ask you why you were speeding or didn't turn on your blinker or whatever, he has a certain authority over you. None of you thinks, right? that he's a superior being because he has this role that you don't have. Right? We run into this stuff all the time. People out there run into this all the time and seem to be able to make this category distinction. But when Christians say these things, suddenly that goes out the window and they can't think clearly. Oh, boy, you think women are inferior. No, we don't. No, we don't. We think that they have beautiful, wonderful, God-given roles that are distinct from that of men and vice versa. And to be honored and cherished and not put down like our culture likes to do. No, no, I would argue in their zeal to elevate women, our culture actually puts them down and destroys what's most beautiful about being a woman and about being a man, for that matter, and trying to erase these distinctions. Well, God won't have it, neither will we. I can get off that soapbox now, probably. So having thus addressed these important scriptural concepts, which inform us as to why Jesus used this particular term, I think it's pretty obvious from the scripture why he used that term. He was, it packs a punch. It says a lot. And the apostles followed through on the meaning of that and filled out his teaching for us, what he had taught them about what he meant. And so having, having gotten sort of a handle on it, in order to further understand what our Lord Jesus meant, I think it would be good to consider that there are a couple of things that he's definitely not saying. I'm going to approach it sort of in a negative way here. First, Jesus is not referring to what other men may say of us when he says we shall be called sons of God. Rather, he's speaking of what God says of us. If we go about trying to be peacemakers, people aren't going to be, wow, they must be sons of God, right? God calls us his, his sons. That's what all these texts are about, what God thinks of us, what he calls us. It's, after all, God who determines who his sons are. And that's why he includes women with this status of heirs and being adopted equally with men, for example. He gets to decide that, not the culture into which Paul and Jesus were speaking. In fact, it was kind of countercultural what Jesus and the apostles were saying on this point. 
And God calls us his sons or his children, both now and in the future. Uh, for example, looking in Romans 8, and we see this idea of adoption coming back in again. Romans 8, 14 through 17, Paul writes, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. They're using the masculine term again. But he obviously means all believers. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received excuse me, the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's the more generic term. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Again, our Lord Jesus is God's son by nature. We're God's sons. We're his children by adoption. But just as we've learned that there's a sense in which we are in the kingdom of God now, right? Yet the fullness of the kingdom awaits the future, and in coming weeks maybe we'll look at that more closely. Even so, there's a sense in which the full experience of our adoption as sons awaits the future. We can experience our adoption now, but the fullness of that experience comes in the future with the fullness of the kingdom. Paul makes this clear later on in Romans 8, beginning verse 18, when he writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. There's this future revelation of the sons of God in some special way that's coming. And it's, it's like all of creation is waiting with bated breath for this to happen. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And here he's switching back and forth between sons and children, the more generic term. Because remember, he believes this term, this sonship applies to everyone in Christ. For we know, he writes, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and he's spoken some of that already, right? We have the Spirit in our hearts crying out, Abba, Father, assuring us of our adoption and that we're God's children. He says not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. The redemption of our body. That's the future resurrection that he's talking about. We're not fully saved until the resurrection. We're, we're intended to be uh, body, soul, body, spirit beings. And because of sin, right, when someone dies, their, their, their sp spirit or soul can be separated from their body, what we call the intermediate state, awaiting the resurrection. We're not fully saved until we have resurrection bodies. Now, we're assured of our full salvation now. We're assured of our adoption now. That's why we wait confidently for it. Paul used the word hope there. We're hoping for it. But what he means by hope and what we mean by it, we always have to pause and remind ourselves that those are different things. When we use the word hope, the example I used... I usually use is, I hope the Cubs will win the World Series this year. 
Okay, We all know that means wishful thinking, right? We use the word hope that way a lot. But for Paul, the word hope meant confident assurance. We have a confident assurance of the future adoption because we experience adoption now. That's why the Bible can say we have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. Because we've been saved, the being saved and the shall be saved in the future are going to happen, right? It's a done deal. And the same is true for adoption. Even though there's this future aspect of it. So God himself has called us his sons. And as such, he's given us a marvelous inheritance in Christ. We've looked at what some of that is. Everlasting life, salvation, forgiveness. (laughs) What an inheritance. And all of this is of his grace, which leads to my final point here. And the second one I'm making about what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that we become sons of God by being peacemakers. Some people could read this that way, but you can't read it that way and read the rest of what Jesus and the apostles taught and think that's what Jesus meant. He was not saying that we become sons of God by being peacemakers. He's rather describing the character of those who will be called sons of God. What are they like? In a world that lacks peace, they will be different. We actually become sons of God only by his work of regeneration or renewal in our hearts and through faith in Christ. And this is what the Apostle John was talking about when he wrote in John 1, 12, and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And of course, we experience our status as God's children, as John said, uh, through faith, as we've already seen in our earlier text in in Galatians 3.26, when Paul said, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So, when Jesus says that we will be called sons of God, he's referring to God's declaration about who we are based upon his own work in our hearts not based upon something we do. But this work in our hearts leads to a likeness to our Heavenly Father, in this case, our being peacemakers. And with this in mind, I'd I'd like to make a final point in concluding the message. Uh, Clearly, when Jesus says that the peacemakers will be called sons of God, again, I I think he's insinuating here that there should be a family resemblance between God the Father and those who are called his children. Anyone who claims to be one of the sons of God through faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul made clear in Romans 8, will also bear resemblance to his heavenly Father. And specifically in this passage, he'll be a peacemaker. Notice I used the word he there in the generic male representative headship way. It's inclusive of everyone. Just as his heavenly father has made peace through the sacrifice of Christ, so his children will seek to lead others to reconciliation with God through Christ. As Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
And that's, and anyone who's in Christ we've seen has been adopted by God and has the status of son and heir, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel, which Paul said to the Romans, is the power of God into salvation. And he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what a peacemaker's like. That's being a peacemaker, seeking to bring the peace of God to a lost and dying world. Peace with God that leads to the peace of God in our hearts. So let's end today with each one of us asking himself this question or herself. When people look at me, do they see a family resemblance to my heavenly father? Do they see someone who's committed to bringing his peace to others? Even at great cost. We sang a hymn earlier about taking up our cross. Jesus said we should take up our cross daily and follow him. And as I like to remind us all, he wasn't taking that thing to a picnic. We should be willing even to suffer to be peacemakers. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope I've been able to help uh, the body here understand better why this language is used the way that it is. It's, it's meant to be shocking to the people to whom it was written originally, and it's a bit shocking to us. And uh, it's important that we see why that, that is so. You are trying to break these cultural ideas that they had then just like you are now. We don't, we don't get from the culture around us what we're supposed to be as human beings, as men and women. We get that from you and you alone. And we are just so thankful that we've all been created equal as image bearers. We've all been created, recreated as new creations in Christ with the status of son and heir. Joint heirs. As we explain the gospel to others, help, help us to clarify this so that people can see how important it is that we don't lose sight of these things in the body of Christ and in the world at large. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.